0: Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFTP and FTP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to another episode of the Insider Outsider Podcast. This is a very important topic mental health, DEI, and the workplace and HR perspective. Mental health is an element of DEI often not discussed or addressed. Today's podcast provides some wisdom from HR professionals about what leaders need to know to build competence in this dimension of DEI. Our recent years' tensions with the pandemic, Black Lives Matter, politics, and COVID have made mental health an even more critical and timely issue for exploring today. We have three wonderful guests today. Susan Smith winchester is the chief HR officer at Applied Materials. Lobo is a chief people officer at Navis. And also Jonathan Tramfam is founder and CEO at Reflect, a mental health platform on a mission to make therapy more accessible and effective. So I want to welcome all three of you. Thank you so much for your time. I just want to open it up to hear from the get-go sort of what's most on your heart today as you think about mental health issues in your role as an HR professional, business leader, and what do you most want leaders to know? And why do you personally care about this topic so much? So I know that's a lot. Just want to sort of broaden it up and open it up. Suni, you want to jump in first?
1: Oh, great. I was nominated. I was waiting for that.
0: (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs)
1: Um, Well, you know, just when I think about the whole uh, conversation and the topic um, that we're discussing today, I think about mental health very much in the space of our inclusion, diversity, equity, and belonging strategy, uh, both at Navis at the organizational level, but for me personally, um, as a leader too. Um, You know, when we think about inclusion, We really want at Navis to be for us from an inclusion agenda to be broad and about who we are including uh, within the organization, within the conversations that we're having. And we've often felt like, um, you know, we've been quite exclusion with with the, with the inclusion conversation, right? Exclusionary. Um, and, and the thing that we often miss is the whole mental health aspect of inclusion. Uh, we talk about inclusion in various dimensions, uh, and we found that uh, we were not integrating our mental health conversation. So at Navis, we have a program called Me at Navis, where we uh, look at different pillars of wellness, mental health being one of the pillars. Uh, and when we integrated and had that conversation holistically at the organization, we found it resonated so much better with people, um, with our employees, with our leaders, with me personally as a leader, um, and that, that that magic we created as a result of um, making it permissible to have the conversation around mental health in the whole um, dynamic of being an inclusive organization and where belonging mattered to us was um really powerful and the way it's um it's you know just um, happened for us in the organization we've now had um, a whole quarter that we've dedicated to mental health and rather than call it mental health we're calling it mental fitness uh, where we've gotten to the point where our employees are asking for you know tools. To help them in a, um, and all of us as leaders too, in our everyday work with everything that's happening around us, how can we be more able to cope? And what does mental fitness look like, which you know, almost an outcome and a positive. Uh, element to how do I I cope? You know, we think about physical fitness and we do a lot of work in that space, Uh, but we've now shifted our focus for this quarter to solely focus on mental fitness. And we're finding the sessions that we're running around positive intelligence as a tool to help us focus on mental fitness uh, are really gaining traction in the organization. So for me as a leader um, and as an individual, it's wonderful to see that to have the conversation to make it permissible to have that conversation at an organizational level and to think about how can we as individuals, leaders and and employees cope and what are the tools that each of us um, can learn from each other to do that.
2: Yeah, and Sunia, I think I'll just build on that because that was a great, a great foundation the way you described it at your company. The thing I was thinking about when you were talking is for me, this is all about creating a workplace where people can bring their full selves to work, where they can and want to do their very best work. And there are so many factors that get in the way of that.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: you know, ultimately, as leaders, we we want our teams highly engaged, we're looking for great performance. And from an employee standpoint, we want people to feel like they're in a company that cares about them, where they matter, where they have fair and equal opportunity to everything, you know, from advancement to development to coaching to whatever. And you know, it's simple relative to the concept. Actually, creating that is a bit more challenging. Uh, and the other layer I want to add into this discussion on mental health is that we have all these factors that Michael mentioned as we were kicking off the session. And there's another dimension of mental health that I want to bring into this discussion too. So I'd like to share some statistics with you that are actually quite startling and were very surprising to me. And the research shows that actually almost two-thirds of adults experienced some trauma as they were growing up before the age of 18. And these are categorized as what's called the ACEs, A-C-E-S, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And it includes things like emotional, physical, sexual abuse, uh, violence in the home, addiction, neglect. There's a list of 10 items. And I find it startling that two thirds, nearly two thirds experience at least one of those 10 ACEs and actually 40% have experienced two or more. And so it's really key to understand the significance of that means that many of us are bringing um, some heaviness in our own hearts, often unconsciously affecting us in the workplace. And it's another layer and dimension of understanding mental health in the workplace that I wanted to bring bring into this conversation. There's great additional research that was actually quoted in an article recently in Men's Health Advisor that indicated that negative emotional experiences, and it can be lots of different things, things that Michael talked about, but also this piece related to our past, that when there are negative emotions, it can be directly correlated to cardiovascular issues, depression, anxiety all the things that negatively affect one's mental wellness or mental fitness. I love that. And so I think that, you know, there's this other opportunity for understanding that not only do we have the complexity of what's happening in the world around us, we also have the complexity of something that we don't typically talk about in the workplace, which is how often our pasts are unconsciously showing up with us at work, where we are having overreactions to conflict moments. And the overreactions lead to a whole series of negative thinking right into limiting beliefs, uh, old behavior patterns that served us well perhaps in the past, mine being unfortunately people-pleasing and perfectionism, but the ultimate mental wear that it takes on an individual to manage all that in addition to all the additional stressors that we're facing. So it's a great opportunity to understand that there's a whole level of different um, issues that we're dealing with from a mental health standpoint that we've really never talked about in the workplace. So I'm delighted to be able to have this conversation to weave in not only the pieces related to, Michael, what you talked about, um, depending on who you are and what you, you know, whether you're whatever your ethnic background is, your gender, uh, age, whatever, all of those things become even more complex as we overlay this piece related to our past. So we could talk more about that. I want to stop talking so we can hear Jonathan, but uh, a really important discussion. I'm thrilled that we're talking about this finally related to how do we create um, healthy organizations that allow people to be who they are and bring their best to work.
3: Yes, yeah, Susan, I love the phrase you use of bringing your whole self to work. Um, and for me, you know, this our mission at Reflect is is to make mental health more accessible. And what we're seeing through COVID is that the line between our personal and professional lives are blurring so much as we work from the home more, as we're working remotely. This last year and a half, there has been no line. It's really blurred. And we see that with people on our team who are parents. We see that with, you know, the grief and the trauma we're experiencing. As a, as a country, as the world right now. And, and for me, this mission is very personal um, because I was someone who um, was always taught growing up to push through it. And no matter, you know, I came from consulting, I worked a hundred hour weeks, I would just push through it. And talking about emotions was something that was not um, encouraged for me growing up. Um, and so I don't know if that's an ace or not, but it definitely was something that that was kind of my learned behavior. And it really was to a point where I felt burned out um, and started looking for therapy that I realized how important mental health or mental fitness is. And actually um, the number one cause of disability in America is depression. And so this you know, this old school way of thinking that there's this work and this life and there's a big line between the two, or it's so, um, I think that's not the reality today. And I think maybe it never was the reality. Um, and so for me, this idea of helping people talk about their mental health, and get access to tools and resources so that they can really be their whole selves and understand what are their triggers, what in their past they're bringing to work, so they can can ultimately be a better um, leader, better peer, better employee, and ultimately, I think, create a more positive environment for all of us. I think that's really, really important as part of this conversation.
2: Yeah, you just made me think about the personal connection. and. You know, I think about what we're talking about for me, the personal impact of being unconscious to how much my past was affecting me was it it resulted in, you know, at the end of the day, regardless of whatever I'd done, good or bad, I'd go home and essentially give myself an evaluation and a judgment that it wasn't good enough and, you know, then proceed into a whole series of mental thinking around how I needed to beat myself up. And every day was the same. Every day was, you know, go back to work, prove yourself. Um, Because of some unconscious beliefs around myself that I felt like it was everybody else's job to decide whether or not I was worthy. And my job was to prove that I was. Mm. And that kind of a dysfunctional career has significant negative costs. For me and for many people, it's choosing unhealthy habits to self-comfort. So for me, you know, Chardonnay and I became very good friends for a long time. I'm happy to say that I've been sober now for 17 and a half years, but it was to take the edge off of the feelings related to the, you know, the underlying limiting belief that I was not in touch with at all, that somehow I wasn't good enough. And what's startling to me is I, as I talk more and more about this, how many people feel the same way, how many overachievers Wildly successful people in their careers at the highest levels in our company are dealing with these same kind of thoughts. And you know, it goes back to your point, Jonathan. The impact in terms of depression and anxiety and the effect on our ability to perform at our optimal levels is significantly um, damaged. I mean, it really, it really does affect us. And then you just overlay all the other things on top of it, depending on who you are and where you come from. You know, it's it's a recipe for um, a lot of a lot of negative forces that are affecting the people that we are that we are working with.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Susan, what you describe, I, I'm, I appreciate the the vulnerability and the sharing of your your particular patterns and your past. And you did that really well in the the book that you wrote, Healing at Work, which is mm-hmm. uh, I found it was really moved by, you know, your own using of your own example of how do you claim and look at how am I playing out what my coping This is growing up in in ways that are healthy but also not healthy. And how can I shift that and there is a culture at work, which, you know, in our work at WMFDP, we look at it as driven by an insider culture, a lot of white men in the U S but that, that sense of urgency, that sense of perfectionism, that sense of you only have value by doing and you've got to do more, do faster, um, suck it up, don't show weakness. Um, so there's the personal experiences that we've all had growing up and freeing ourselves up from there. And then there's the culture that still reinforces Um, Some of these dynamics or has this not even opened up to them to look at them and transcend them?
2: Yeah, I know for a long time in my career, again, from that unconscious, I call it the unconscious wounded career path where I spent, you know, 30 of my 34 years, (laughs) I'm embarrassed to say that, but it's true. Um, I, I believed it was my job to try to be like the guys to try to fit in to the insider group and when i think about the discretionary effort that i put into trying to be accepted as one of the guys was really you know it was a really waste of time and energy but it was it was that unconscious subtle dynamic that exists in a lot of our companies that to be successful you have to be like the insider group and and, and that, you know it goes right back to what we talked about before which is then i'm not bringing myself to work i happen to be a woman and i'm not going to be one of the guys So trying to learn how to golf and smoke cigars on the golf course and, you know, whatever is, it's a complete waste of energy. That assimilation, that expectation that somehow we're supposed to um, assimilate into the insider group. That just creates the, you know, it's like a a subtle layer of energy in the organization that takes away from people's ability to be who they are. And, you know, it's part, I think that's part of the great work that, that White Men's Full Diversity Partners is doing is to try to help articulate some of these unconscious, subtle dynamics and forces that are at play in our companies.
0: Yeah, thanks. Suni, go ahead.
2: Yeah, Susan, you know,
1: when you were speaking, it's 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 so interesting. My whole career is flashing in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. Uh, <laughs> Relate to a lot of things that you're saying. Uh, the, the, the one thing that, you know, um, I had to struggle with is this whole idea of perfectionism and you know, that came from uh, growing up in a typical Asian household, right? When my mom was, um, nothing was good enough. You got a 99, 100 in math and it was, why didn't you get 100, 100 in math? Like 99 is not acceptable. Yep. And it still, it still is with me today, till today. And, you know, I, I find it hard to um, shake it off. I have a very supportive partner who sometimes surprises me because, you know, he'll, he'll just say to me, oh, I'm so inspired by you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> My inner circle, you know, in my personal life, says that you know it's um I I didn't grow up with that reinforcement or that positive reinforcement, uh, and you know it took a long time for me to shake that off me as a leader. Um, and some really hard lessons, you know, I um I started my professional career in Australia, and for those of you who've been to Australia, New Zealand. Um, they're some of the most irre- irreverent to hierarchical <laughs> people there are in the world, or hierarchy. Uh, and it's nice to grow up as a manager in that environment because people don't respect you just because of your title. They respect you because of who you are. And it really pushes you to become a better leader. It pushed me to become a better leader. Um, and, pe- you know, I had a, a boss who told me early on in my career, Suni, I'm not going to give you the highest performance rating, even though your output is so great. And do you know why that is? And I was like, why would that be? And he said, because people don't actually like to be around you at work. And he actually said that to me and it hurt wow. me. It really hurt oh, wow. me. Um, and, you know, that's the great thing about Aussie is, you know, what you see is what you get. And I was so grateful mm. uh, for that feedback early on in my career as a manager. I was like, how is that possible? <laughs> you know? I'm everything right. I'm working twenty four seven. He says that's the problem. You need to get a life. You uh-huh. need to show your team that getting having a life is as important as being at work. 24/7. Mm-hmm. And it really caused me to shift my thinking early on in my career about being a leader. It took mm-hmm. a lot of time to do that, uh, and I'm still working at it. But it's so powerful as a leader to give your team permission. You know, And and of course, you, you're the role model, right? So people are looking at you. Um, so when my admin says to me on a Saturday, I'm going to work to schedule this meeting, I'm deliberate to say, we don't need to schedule that meeting on the Saturday, right? We can wait for Monday morning and schedule it on Monday morning. But there's so much in our workplace culture that reinforces this aspect of, you know, yep. on 24 seven and with everything that's going on around us, we don't have a break. We don't have the time to actually just say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be on for the weekend because I need the time. Um, but it's been such a journey it's, and it still is a journey, you know, and I have to correct myself constantly and ask my team for feedback constantly about how I'm making them feel or the permission I'm granting them overtly or subvertly to do the things that we allow ourselves to do at work. Love that.
3: Yeah. yeah. And Sunni, you know, you, that makes me think a lot about how culture gets reinforced and communicated. And mm-hmm. if you think about a lot of the companies that we've worked for, they have traditionally been run by white men and not just white men, but white men who fit a certain mold. And so it's mm-hmm. not surprising that culture gets reinforced in a way that is oftentimes unintentional, but is by its byproduct exclusionary. Um and I think, as especially within the mental health and the diversity conversation, it's really important to have allies first and foremost who have who can be vulnerable and disclose maybe their mental health history or that they've gone to therapy before or mm-hmm. other factors because it creates a more open environment for people to bring themselves to work because I mean there's nothing worse than saying we're an open, honest culture, but then all the leaders don't model that behavior because they are stuck in a a previous culture. Uh, and so I think it's really great that when we tell these stories about our past and, and our vulnerable as leaders, it just allows people, it gives space for people in our companies to to breathe a little bit more and to bring themselves to work a little bit more and to not feel like the, the culture is as rigid um, or as exclusionary.
2: Yeah, that that whole concept, I learned a, a phrase for it from a company called Sendelani. They do a ton of culture work. They call it shadow of the leader. Mm-hmm. And that whatever the leader's mm. shadow is, whatever is casting out into the organization is what everybody believes is expected. So whatever the leader is doing or not doing gets replicated, you know, over and over again. So being super clear about, you know, sooner your point about how you're showing up for your team to try to model that is a really healthy shadow of your leadership. And I, I think that's a really key concept.
1: But I don't do it well always. <laughs> I understand.
3: <laughs> but but it's still inspiring to all of us suni it's still very inspiring
1: <laughs> no it's it's I, I think it's being conscious about it right i mean often we don't think we hmm. uh, what we do has the repercussion it does on our teams and you know as a chief people officer on our organization as a whole um so you know i've just learned to be more conscious about it and and we are all learning along the way right
0: what what have you seen um any of you, in terms of how to catalyze that through the organization, is it, do you find particular leaders who are willing to be vulnerable and just keep pointing to them as examples, or what, what do you see helps cascade that?
2: I think it always starts with me. You know, it's easy to, to look to others and, um, and you know, either use them as examples or not, but I think some of it, and Sunni, you probably feel this way in your role as a people officer, too, I feel like I need to to demonstrate to the best of my ability vulnerability. And um and speaking about these kinds of issues, I mean, I'm I'm very open about the the challenges and the effects that my past had on me in the career to make it safe. I do it all the time in, in internal coaching discussions, external or in internal coaching discussions. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's happening external to my own little world, but you know, trying to be a good role model relative to just being honest. And part of it is, is getting to a point where, you know, we're really on, we're all on our own leadership journey. But I think one of the key pieces of that journey for all of us needs to be about discovering deeper levels of self-acceptance, regardless of who you are. Mm -hmm. Because when we have a deeper sense of who we are, it becomes less important what people think about us. And it becomes more freeing, actually, to be who we are. Um, The other thing I was going to say that I think is really key, too, is creating forums for people to come together to talk about what's happening and what's bothering them and what's creating stress and anxiety. And I know I can't wait to hear from the other uh, panelists as well, some of the things that they've been uh, either doing or, or part of, uh, but just trying to create space for people to talk about things that are bothering them. So of course, with black lives matter, it was a huge opportunity to bring people together um, with the, the dynamic for Asians that were, you know, being attacked, bringing our Asian um, employee resource group together, um, just bringing groups together, our, 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 military vets with Afghanistan, everything that's happening there is letting people have a forum for expressing the feelings that they're having. And and it it can be very cathartic. I think, I mean, I think that's another key piece of our role as leaders is, and and I'm really proud. I work with super people, Pamela Sherman on our team is our our senior director of culture of inclusion. So just a lot of work that's been done in partnership throughout the organization To I guess, and you mentioned it, Michael, in one of the notes in the, the, the show that we're working on, is creating a safe space where people can come together. And Jonathan, I'd be really curious to hear more about some of the things that your company's doing to, to reinforce, you know, how can we as leaders learn more to be more effective at creating safe spaces?
3: Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I, I think this last year has, has impacted all of us, not only with COVID, but as you mentioned, black lives and the um, violence against Asian Americans and what's happening in the news. And so, as as a CEO and as a a founder, you know, I have to think more about how do I create space and um, balance performance with personal. Um, Because at the end of the day, we're an early stage startup and we're growing and, um, you know, we are um, really... Uh, thinking a lot about how do we continue to reach in, and affect more people, but at the same time, I want to make sure that we're taking care of my own team and the therapists that partner with us. Because as frontline workers, therapists have also had a huge, you know, trauma that they've experienced over the last year. And and I think it's it is about creating space where people can be their se- themselves at work um, and acknowledge what's happening. And I and I think as a as a leader, before it was just like let's focus on work and let's just. You know, let's not bring that stuff into the workplace, but having those forums now where we can talk about these topics, and and actually, I think because of the community we're building at Reflect, also, you know, encourage those conversations for our therapists. You know, we got tons and tons of notes back whenever we put out a statement or do programming for therapists to be able to support their Asian or their Black or their that you know clients. It's helpful because I think what's clear to me is I actually. You know, none of us have the answer and none of us actually know what it's like to be in other people's shoes. Even therapists don't know what it's like to be in all of their patients' shoes. But what we could do is create space and resources for us to get smarter and to listen and have conversations and sometimes also respect when people aren't ready to, to talk. You know, for a lot of my friends who are African American, you know, everyone was reaching out saying, you know, I'm so sorry about this stuff. And it was actually overwhelming for them because it was just like too much. Attention on this topic that was already triggering. And so I think knowing when to speak, but also knowing when to just to listen or to create space, I, I think is something that we're working on as a company. Um, and, and hearing from our therapists, you know, whenever we do these things, these resources are always helpful because I think what we realize is we don't have all the answers. And sometimes for caregivers and for HR professionals and for leaders, we think we need to have all the answers, and if we don't have all the perfect answers, we can't say anything because we don't want to upset somebody else. And and what I've learned over the last year is is saying something, even saying I don't know what to say, is a really powerful way to create space and acknowledgement.
1: And I can you know I can vouch for the sessions that uh, Jonathan runs. He he's been uh, so fantastic, and we miss him in the Bay Area. <laughs> <Tell me. laughs> <laughs> to Navis and uh, you know, talking to our employees about just opening up the space to have the conversation, right? And we've we've called it dialogue circles. That's the, uh, mm-hmm. the branding we've put um, behind it. You can see that my team is big on branding everything we do. <laughs> we have me at Navis and yeah. the dialogue um, But um, you know, the the dialogue circle concept has really taken off. Uh, organizationally, and the most surprising thing for me with Black Lives Matter, um, we thought that it was going to be largely a U.S. issue, you know, that we'd want to talk about within the constraints of uh, North America. And we were so surprised at how well received having the space to have the conversation um, was globally, you know, mm-hmm. and, our, and we did global dialogue circles rather than a um a regional dialogue circles rather than a global one because the regional nuances were so specific um, you know and the Europeans talked a little bit about uh, you know uh, colonization about immigration and all of the economic um, aspects and then personal aspects to that uh, you know we took a different take on it in Asia and in India because it's so different in in those cultures um, but what I found so powerful that Everyone had something to say about it and wanted to participate in the dialogue in their own regions. Mm. Um, and you know, it just multiplied. And um, it got taken on by to your question earlier, Michael, by leaders in those regions who mm-hmm. were coming to that realization themselves. You know, we have a leader for inclusion and diversity, a business leader in Europe who's Dutch. Uh, and he says, you know, as a white Dutch man, um. You know raising two white Dutch boys I really want to be more aware of the things that I'm not aware of uh, so that I can raise better men you know and that was so powerful in Europe in the in the dialogue circle that we were in and he continues to do this work and now we we find employees coming up and saying you know I've read this book on neurodiversity and I really want to talk about it Um, you know and can I can I use the dialogue circle as a forum to do that so you know, that that multiplier effect um, from giving people the space of having the conversation, I find the most rewarding in the work that we do, personally. Yeah. And, and Jonathan started that, you know, by mm-hmm. all the workshops that he did with us. So uh, thank you, Jonathan.
3: Well, thank you for being open to it. And, and I will say this, you know, it's really great when, you know, we came to Navis to, to, um, to do these workshops, to have leadership support, and have people that are there modeling that. Because I think the worst thing that can happen in organizations is for us to say, we really care about diversity and we care about this, but then only some people are, only HR professionals are there at these meetings. And it's one of those things that, you know, for culture to really change, you gotta have support from leadership, you've gotta have different people in the room um, and have lots of different voices in the room. Because that's really what diversity is about. It's not about having only one culture represented, only one gender represented or one orientation.
0: You know, you're all you're all talking about the intersectionality of how mental health and all these other factors play out. And um, I know, and as mental health has impacted my family, um, I've, I've noticed that you know, peop, there's less there, there's sort of like a I I don't feel like socially I'm accepted to be public about a mental illness challenge, being bipolar or being paranoid than. You know, uh, somebody says, you know, I, I feel more safer going to Alcoholics Anonymous. It seems more acceptable. So there's this taboo um, feeling like, you know, some of these dimensions of mental challenges don't feel safe to um, be public with or or feel like they're accepted the same uh, with the same sympathy or acceptance as somebody that says, I have cancer. So those are interesting dynamics mm-hmm. to watch and play play with and understand.
2: We brought in a, a couple of authors recently, Chester Elton and Adrian Gostick, who wrote a book called Anxiety at Work.
0: Mm.
2: And we did a couple different sessions. Uh, the first session was with I don't know several hundred employees. And one of the comments we got back, kind of a consistent comment was, can you please do this for the managers? <laughs> and so we did, we brought them back in and we did a specific course or, you know, session just with the managers. To your point, Michael, that to start allowing managers to know it's okay to talk about some of the things that we have never talked about. Um, and actually it reminded me of another experience I had recently with Berkeley, who do a really cool program around coaching for inclusion. And one of the facilitators said, the work of leaders as it relates to inclusion is inclusion is a lifestyle. It's not like something you do separately. It's it's a habit. It's Inclusive practices as leaders are part of how we make every single decision, how we do every single thing. And whether it's related to creating the safe kind of place to have the conversations we were just talking about related to mental illness. Um, many families are affected by mental health issues, whether it be an immediate member, um, the employer themselves, or a, a related uh, member of the family. And so I just I just think it's this concept of inclusive leadership is it's it's a it's a practice, it's a habit. It's not a program you go do. It's really thinking about everything, every single thing I'm doing and thinking about inclusion, I think Suni, you said this earlier in a very holistic way and you know finding ways to bring out the best of the people that work with us and Mm -hmm. if that's having a private conversation to support them through something they're going through uh, or if it's about being open and vulnerable and you know role modeling some of the things we've talked about all of those things are you know showing the rest of the company that these are practices or habits or a lifestyle of being an inclusive leader and and you know Michael, I know you and Bill say something I always love, which is this is a journey. You know, the more I know, the less I know. And, um, you know, continuing to be open to that learning uh, from one another. And, um, you know, so you're thinking, talking about some of your branding. We have, uh, I guess it's branding in some respects around inclusion. It starts with me. So mm-hmm. that's the message to everybody. Everybody plays a role in creating an inclusive environment, an environment that creates that kind of energy and and workspace where people feel that they can be who
0: they are. What what are you all suggestions to leaders who are listening around, you know, knowing there's more and more stress for people just coping with this extension of COVID extension and the tensions between vaccine, no vaccine and how that plays out. And we all thought we were kind of be through this by now, but now it's like, and Delta variant, it's continuing and continuing. And the 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 trauma and the stress of it all seems to just continue.
3: Yeah, you know, I, I as someone on the receiving end, when we're looking at people that are stressed, looking for mental health resources, you know, it's 45% of Americans say that their mental health has been negatively impacted by COVID. And, you know, our business has tripled in the last, since COVID started. So this is a real impact um, that I think every one of us is facing Um, And I would say that as leaders, you know, the the biggest challenge I think that we're hearing is that when folks are looking for mental health resources, there's a fear of what if someone finds out? And the reason why is because there's still this layer of how will I be judged? Mm
0: -hmm.
3: How will my performance be impacted? How will people, my team see me, right? Will they still see me in the same light? Will my peers see me in the same light? Will my friends see me in the same light? And I think it all starts with normalizing that we're all feeling this. If 45% of Americans, and I think that number is probably, it should be, it's probably 100% in reality, um, we're actually in it together. And I think when a leader says that we're in it together, and I'm feeling this too, that has major ripple effects, of, you know, as much as any programming we can do. Uh, and in therapy, it's there's a concept called self-disclosure, which is about when you're a patient, hearing things from your therapist that they know what it's like to be a mother or have, maybe have a miscarriage or be someone who's d- dealt with anxiety or depression, that actually creates a lot of closeness and it allows the patient to share more information. Um, and you want to do it selectively. You want to do it in a space that creates space, not in a way that suffocates the you know space. But I think that self-disclosure and that acknowledgement, we're all in it together because we've all gone through this really... Really crazy time in our in in the world. I think is really important, and it and it's about doing it in a way that feels authentic, in a way that is vulnerable, as you said, Michael. Because um, I think that speaking from the heart and and speaking with vulnerability creates a space for all of us to um, to also acknowledge what what we're all individually feeling.
2: Yeah. And I, just to, to build on that a little bit, I, I don't think our job as leaders is to try to psychoanalyze our teams. I don't think that's what at all what we're talking about. <laughs> it is about being aware of what our team members, how they're showing up, paying attention to their energy, their nonverbals. You know, it's harder to do virtually, but noticing if somebody seems more withdrawn you know, just paying attention to the, the dynamics of how people are showing up and then potentially privately having an offline conversation to say, I noticed that you seem somewhat withdrawn. Is there anything I can do to support you? It could be as simple as that, and it could be just a referral to a resource like Jonathan's company. Um, you know, so I, I think that that it's be, be, in this world, SUNY, To your point, we're all running hundred miles a minute. You know, twenty-four hours a day, sometimes slowing down enough to pay attention to how our people are showing up. And then taking a proactive step to open up space that if they need some support, you're there for them.
0: Yeah. Sunny, anything you want to add?
1: Well, you know, that I'm just looking mindful of time, so I
0: don't want
1: to yeah. <laughs> the space. But the the one thing that I will add is um, you know, as a as a female leader, as a, you know, and, and often I I underestimate the impact that has on the organization. You know, I'm the only woman leader on the executive team um, and person of color, actually. Um, so it's It's something that I don't consciously think about. But the other day, um, you know, we had a, a favor for our CEO and uh, one of the ladies um, in a team that is not part of my team. And, you know, I, I actually thought I really interact with, you uh, came to me and uh, and just broke, broke down crying you know in the in the in the session I mean you know in the farewell it was a it was a, a happy moment we were farewelling our ceo but um you know she was feeling really emotional about what was going on at the at an organizational level you know we've just had a change in ownership and she didn't know how to to cope with it um and um you know I uh, I was I was surprised, but I, you know, I reinforced the fact that, you know, having tears in your eyes is a is is nothing to be worried about because I do it all the time. And you know, it, it brought me to have tears in my eyes after seeing her reaction. Um, and you know, we gave each other a hug and it was it was so interesting. And you know, we continued the conversation offline and I checked in on her, but there was there were so many people that noticed that interaction. Uh, and one of the things she said to me is, I would have never done this with anybody else on the executive team. And somehow I feel I have the mm. permission to do it with you. Yes. And that was something that really touched me uh, because it was not something I consciously did or thought about.
0: yeah, you know? yeah.
1: Something that we need to be aware of that in our interactions, the way we uh-huh. show ability in an open forum and a big forum, you know, when we're talking all hands meetings and things. Has such an impact on individuals that we don't even interact with on a daily basis. So it's so important for us as leaders to be aware of that, yeah. um, you know, and the ripple effect it can create culturally in an organization, and giving permission to uh, mm. people, people permission to do that. That's
0: great, yeah, and to normalize.
1: Yeah, you know, yeah.
0: We are living in unprecedented times. Yeah, and there's tension there's a stress and anxiety and it's normal for all of us to be feeling different layers of that at different times and that's okay and um making sure we can support each other and making sure that um we're taking care of each other and ourselves and just normalizing that there's stress in our midst yeah so i'm uh i'm noticing we got about five minutes left so I'm just Any closing minute or so of thought any of you want to part folks with? Most you want them to think about, reflect on, take away.
2: I'll start and be, uh, I learned when you're speaking, be bright, be brief, and be gone. So I'll be really quick. Um, (laughs) I I guess the takeaway I would, would share is I think an opportunity for all of us is to help our teams and ourselves focus on positive experiences When we're focusing on positive experiences, it gives us the opportunity to literally reshape and rewire the neural pathways in our brain. The science of neuroplasticity teaches us and the combination with positive psychology really helps elevate how people are feeling. And so just even starting a meeting with what are we celebrating today, you know, starts to elevate the the perspective of where people's attention and focus goes. So I, I think that's one small thing I would carry away as leaders. We we can create that kind of a culture where we're focused on the successes and the celebrations rather than always what's not working and
0: what's wrong. Yeah. Thanks, Susan. And I, I remember some, some other tips like that are in your book, Healing at Work.
2: Thank you. Yep.
0: Resource. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
1: Try and be bright and be brief, Susan. <laughs> be bright, be brief, be gone. I love that. Sure. <laughs> I think as um, leaders at work, but also each one of us, employees at work, every, every one of us, when I think about how we can support mental health at work, I think about four main things. Modeling health, healthy behaviors, and that's uh, tough to do sometimes, but you know, reminding ourselves to model those. Uh, scheduling non-work-related check-ins. I find that so powerful with people. Um Offering flexible schedules and, you know, making them permissible in the culture and talking about them. You know, I'm taking the day off to spend time with my kids because I need to do that. Um, And lastly, investing in mental health training. And that's why we've called it mental fitness to your, um, you know, point about being positive. We want to turn the conversation into something actionable and positive for all of us at work. So those are the four things I'd say around supporting mental health at work.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Sue.
3: Yes, and I, w- I think those are really important as part of culture elements. And what I would just add to that um, is that, you know, it's really important that we all acknowledge that we, like Michael said, we, we've gone through a really traumatic time over the last year and a half. Um, and starting with space and vulnerability is great as leaders, um, and that you're not alone and if you don't know what to do it's okay it's okay to look for resources and and i just would be remiss without offering reflect as a resource i think for folks who um are looking for mental health support or just even questions about how to have that conversation um it's something that we're all learning and we're all figuring out and and there's the haze that we're all experiencing we're not alone in it I feel it you know we all feel it and it's okay to say that and i and i think you know, the balance of being positive without, while still acknowledging this is real trauma, but how do we help all of our organizations move forward? I think that's the balance that we all have as leaders is creating space while also helping create momentum and positivity um, around us. And so I'm excited about that these conversations are happening and I'm excited that, that more people feel comfortable talking about this at work. So thank you all for having that space and, and giving that space to your teams. Thanks,
0: Jonathan, and thanks for starting. Reflect, you know, being able to have a resource out there where people can put out what they need and have you and your system help them find a resource a mental health professional. So, you know, the other thought I have is, you know, similar to able-bodied privilege from a physical dimension. Somebody also was talking to me about neurotypical privilege, and that, you know, so if if I find myself, um, you know how aware am I that I may not be dealing with uh, uh, strong anxiety or depression or other kinds of mental illness, mental challenge, other other ways of um, things that others are dealing with. And all of us have our levels of stress and anxiety, but just that that some some something I'm not navigating that others on my team, others in my organization may be navigating more. And I'm I, you know, to whatever degree I'm navigating it and I can share that and give permission and model that is powerful. But it's another dimension of DEI that I'm really glad you all took the time to to join and share your experiences about. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Thank you Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world, For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.